How's it going, folks? Welcome to the show. This is session 44 of our synchronized study of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. This time we're going to be in Luke chapter 14. And let's just dive on in. Luke chapter 14, verse 1 says, And it came to pass, as Jesus went into the house of one of the chief Pharisees to eat bread on the Sabbath day, that they watched him. Folks, at this point in the narrative, whenever Jesus is invited by a religious leader to anything, it's a trap. They've set up a trap, and evidently these particular religious leaders didn't know about another trap that was set before by other leaders, because it's just another Sabbath trap. They did this all the time. They would put sick people in Jesus' presence, knowing he wanted to heal them, but they set it up on a Sabbath day. Anyway, he walks in here. It's the Sabbath day, and there's this man, according to Scripture, with a disease known as dropsy, which today would be called edema. It's the retention of bodily fluids in excess. So this guy's sitting there. I mean, folks, can you imagine? I mean, this isn't in Scripture, but when I I read this, I'm thinking, can you imagine the poor guy with dropsy? What did they say to him to get him there? I mean, when you think about the calculating and the cruelty, and these are supposedly religious leaders, and Jesus is knowing what they're thinking. He knows this is a trap. He knows the conditions of the trap. If I heal him, I'm guilty of breaking the Sabbath. If I don't heal him, I'm guilty of not having compassion. Well, why should I bear the burden of this trap? I'm going to put it on them. Because these are all the learned Wise scribes and Pharisees, they're the ones that know the law backwards and forwards. They know everything. And they've accused Jesus before of going over their heads, presuming to be somebody that he's not. So he's thinking, hmm, I'm going to turn this trap around on them. Knowing what they're thinking. Verse 3, Jesus answered, spake unto the lawyers and the Pharisees, saying, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath day? And when you read this at first glance, we don't realize he just sprung the trap without doing anything, and now they're the ones in the spotlight. They're the ones that are going to have to decide what's right and what isn't. How are they going to answer? If they say it's lawful to heal on the Sabbath day, they're going to be guilty of teaching against the law. If they say don't heal him, then they're going to be the ones that are going to be viewed as not being compassionate. So he just turned the light around and put it on them. Let them sweat it out. But verse 4 says they held their peace. They didn't say anything. So Jesus took the man and healed him and let him go. You know, can't blame Jesus. He asked the lawyers and the Pharisees. If they wanted to, they could have said, Teacher, we get that you want to heal him and we want him healed too. But it's the Sabbath and just in case that's a breaking of the law, why don't you heal him tomorrow? It can wait till tomorrow. But they didn't even do that. They held their peace because it was a trap. And then verse 5, Jesus answered them saying, Which of you having a son or an ox or a donkey fall into a pit, will you not straight away pull him out on the Sabbath day? Come on. And they could not answer him again to these things. They couldn't say anything. They were unable to reply to this. But then in verse 7 says, He put forth a parable to those which were invited when he noticed how they were choosing the best places of honor to sit. And Jesus has noticed this before. He said something about it in our last session. He said, boy, do you covet the best seats in the synagogues. You love to be bowed down to and greeted in the marketplaces, the streets. 
But this time he actually says something about it to the extent, here's why that's not a good thing. Here's why that's a bad idea. Verse 8, when you are invited by anyone to a marriage feast, don't recline on the chief seat in the place of honor, lest a more distinguished person than you has been invited. And he who invited both you and he will come to you and say, excuse me, let this man have the place you have taken. And then with humiliation and a guilty sense of impropriety, you begin to take the lowest place. Don't do that. When you are invited, go and recline in the lowest place to begin with, so that when your host comes in, he may see you and say to you, friend, go up higher. Then you will be honored in the presence of all who are there. Everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. Now, everyone there should have already known this because Jesus is amplifying Proverbs 25, verses 6 and 7. But you know, folks, Jesus gave us the perfect example of this. You think about where Jesus is right now. He's on the Father's throne in heaven. And one day he will sit on David's throne over Israel as capital of the universe when heaven and earth become one. Where did things start? Born in a barn because there was no room at the inn, and placed in a barnyard feeding trough that we romantically call the manger. But anyway, Jesus said all of this in response to his observation of the people at this dinner scrambling around trying to get the best seats. It kind of makes you wonder where Jesus wound up, because I can't really see Jesus fighting his way to get the best seat. And you know if everybody there was scrambling, so it kind of makes you wonder, the Bible doesn't tell us where he wound up, but anyway... He notices that and responds with that parable. But then he turns to the host and says, starting in verse 12, Jesus said to the man who invited him, when you give a dinner or a supper, don't invite your friends, your brothers, your relatives, your wealthy neighbors, lest perhaps they also invite you in return. And so you are paid back. But when you give a banquet or a reception, invite the poor, the disabled, the lame, the blind. Then you'll be blessed because they have no way of repaying you, and you will be recompensed at the resurrection of the just. And what Jesus is talking about there is the judgment seat of Christ, where the saints are judged for their good works. Jesus is not saying that you can't be hospitable or friendly towards your family, your friends, or your neighbors. Jesus is addressing a motive behind good works and good deeds. You can do the right thing for the wrong reasons, and the Sermon on the Mount brought that up. Well, you can also give to folks expecting something in return, maybe not at present, but at a later date. And what Jesus is saying, if you're investing in the kingdom, because that's what this is about, you get to the end of verse 14, he's talking about being recompensated, not by the person you were good to, but by God. Because at the resurrection, when Jesus comes back, that's when we're going to be recompensed for the good that we did down here. The more we got out of doing good from the people we did good to, the less we get back from God when Jesus comes. And that's important. Because we look at things from a very temporal perspective down here. We all do it. I'm guilty of it. We're always thinking about the bottom line right here, right now, in front of us. And Jesus is going beyond that. He's talking about ambassadorship. 
All of us folks, if we're going to call ourselves Christians, we are ambassadors. Being an ambassador for Christ means representing Jesus to other people. I don't know who first said this, but it's a very convicting reality to ponder the possibility that you or me or anyone could be the only light of Jesus that someone may ever see. I'm not talking about witnessing or sharing the gospel. I'm not talking about anything like that. I'm talking about just how you look and behave toward other people. You don't know who's watching. You don't know who's paying attention or what God may do with that. Now, what happens next, folks, is pretty interesting because there's a character here in verse 15 who says something that shifts the level of conversation into a much deeper discussion. Up until now, Jesus was just using the occasion of their dinner appointment to make a point about humility and good works. Humility expressed by taking the lowly seat and genuine good works by targeting those who aren't able to pay you back. But this fellow, after hearing Jesus speak of the resurrection of the just, he says this in verse 15, he says, Blessed is he who shall eat bread in the kingdom of God. So Jesus decided to take things up a notch and go even deeper with the analogy of the banquet. Starting in verse 16, Jesus said to him, There was a man who once gave a great supper and invited many. And at the hour for the supper, he sent his servant to say to those who had been invited, Come, for all is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses and to beg off. The first said to him, I have bought a piece of land and I have to go out and see it. I beg you, have me excused. And another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen and I am going to examine them and put my approval on them. So I beg you, have me excused. Another said, I have married a wife and because of this I am unable to come. So the servant came back and reported these answers to his master. And then the master of the house said in wrath to his servant, Go quickly into the streets of the city, the great streets, the small streets, and bring in here the poor, the disabled, the blind, the lame. And the servant said, Lord, it has been done as you have commanded, yet there is still room. Then the master said to the servant, Go then into the highways and the hedges, and urge and constrain them to yield and come in, so that my house may be filled. For I tell you, not one of those who were originally invited shall taste my supper. And as we finish this parable, it becomes apparent what Jesus is saying. It was inspired by the man's statement, Blessed are those who eat bread in the kingdom of God. If you'll remember, the kingdom of God is a title for not just the millennial reign, but everything that submits itself under God's rule. So this parable is talking about the call to salvation. The master of the house who has prepared the supper is Jesus. He is the one who made the preparations and made everything ready. It's all done. The servant in this parable is the Holy Spirit. And the offer was first made to national Israel. As we've seen in the gospel account, the religious leaders rejected him. And the royal authorities rejected him too. Actually, they were trying to kill Jesus even before the religious leaders were. But then it went into the streets. The poor, the lame, and many, not all, but many did respond to the invitation. 
And then later in the book of Acts, after Jesus has returned to his father, we will see this parable continue to be fulfilled and that the movement starts in Jerusalem, moves its way outward and eventually into all the world. And even today, this parable still applies. Jesus has made everything ready, folks. His blood was shed on everybody's behalf, everybody. So he sends out the Holy Spirit to make his invitation clear. There's a bunch of religious networks and radio stations, a lot of sermons out there, but most of them are ineffective. There's a lot of flesh involved in the creation of this stuff. But we don't know what the Holy Spirit's doing with all of that. Most of what I think the Holy Spirit does is independent of a lot of the outreach efforts that are out there. Not all, but God has a way of getting through. So he sends out the Holy Spirit to make his invitation clear. The servant wouldn't be doing his job very well if people didn't hear the invitation or understand it when they did hear it. And this is why I've been saying for years that blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, which is called the unforgivable sin, is not something you say. A lot of people worry about that. It's got nothing to do with anything you say. It's rejection. Blasphemy against the Holy Spirit is rejecting the Holy Spirit's invitation and insulting his intelligence by lying to him about why. The excuses that were given in this parable to the servant were not obligations that distracted them from accepting the invitation. They were blatant lies. I bought some land and I need to go see it. Well, who buys land without looking at it first? Especially then. Big corporations might do that today, but not an individual in Jesus' day. The same with the second lie. I bought five yoke of oxen, so I want to go inspect them. And the third one is the most absurd of all. I have married a wife. Like, what's that got to do with anything? It might not be too apparent in the English, but these were not understandable conflicts. These were flimsy excuses that insulted the intelligence of the servant. And then the servant had to go back to the master and tell him. No wonder he gets angry. And what makes it more insulting is that the master is the one who made everything ready. They didn't have to do anything but show up. Notice the master's response to this in verse 24. Not one of those who were invited shall taste my supper. They committed the unforgivable sin. A lot of times we give way too much credit to a thing called ignorance. We blame ignorance for most people's rejection of Jesus. We blame other Christians for being bad examples. I understand that. But what nobody takes into consideration is that there is another party that no one thinks about, and it's the Holy Spirit. Jesus told us in this parable what the Holy Spirit is up to with those who haven't heard the invitation yet. Verse 23 says he's urging them. He's constraining them to yield and come in, compelling them. It's an ongoing thing. The Holy Spirit knows about the bad examples of Christians. He knows about all the various opinions. He knows about the scientific community, what their deception. He knows all about the propaganda. He knows what he has to do to urge, constrain them to yield and come in and compel them. He knows what he has to do. We have no idea what God is doing in a person's heart behind the scenes. We also don't know what that person has privately said in response to God. Only God knows for certain. Verse 25, this is apparently after the dinner. 
It says that huge crowds, great multitudes were following along with Jesus. And he turned and said to them, If any man comes to me and does not hate his father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, and yes, his own life also, cannot be my disciple. And folks, Jesus didn't end there. So before we swallow the rest of what he says, let's stop and catch our breath. Because folks, what on earth does that mean? Jesus said to love your enemies, and now he's telling us to hate our mother and father and wife and children and brothers and sisters. What's going on? Obviously, these words in English have a meaning that has an analog, vague, fuzziness to it, as opposed to the digital preciseness of Greek and Hebrew. The word hate, in this context, actually means to love less than. So why doesn't the English just say that? It's because in the Greek, the less than is to a degree that's so different that the only way to make the point in English would be to use the word hate. Have you ever heard somebody ask a question and say, on a scale from one to ten, how do you feel about such and such? One being hate, ten being love, and then they say twenty. Well, twenty isn't on the scale, but they answer it that way because they're trying to say that their love is so profound that you can't rate it on the scale. One to ten won't cut it. They have to go to twenty. Well, that's sort of what's in the original language here. It doesn't mean literal hate. It means that the degree of emotional love that's required to be a disciple of Jesus is such a consuming demand that in comparison to your love for family and friends, you'd have to call what you feel for them hate, even though it's not really hate. And once we keep reading what Jesus continues to express in this very stern warning, we will discover that Jesus isn't talking about how to get saved or what's required to be saved. Jesus does all of that work for us, and it is finished. What Jesus is getting into here is what's required to actively pursue Jesus, and that's what these people were wanting to do. They were following him. They had already heard his message, and they either accepted it or rejected it, but those who had accepted it, who were following him, they wanted more. They wanted to be near him. They wanted to follow him. They wanted to hang on his every word. They wanted to be his disciple. And like most Christians who want to get serious about their relationship with Jesus, there are some very naive presumptions that Jesus knows about, and he wants to tear those down right now. These are not the requirements for salvation. These are the requirements for discipleship, and the requirements are very high. Now, Jesus isn't trying to discourage you because he wants us to follow him. He wants us to follow his teachings closely, but he warns us. Verse 26 If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother in the sense of indifference to or relative disregard for them in comparison with his attitude toward God, and likewise his wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Now, folks, that's a prophecy. This is the second time Jesus has brought up the cross. He has told many people that he was going to be killed. A lot of them didn't get it. A lot of them didn't believe in it. But here, he's even telling them how he's going to die, which ought to be a surprise because if he were to be killed by the Jewish religious leaders, you would expect stoning. Dying on a cross was the way the Romans killed you. So for Jesus to say this, this is a prophecy that they probably don't fully comprehend. But what he's saying is, look, if you want to be like me, this is what I'm doing. 
I'm going to bear a cross. Whoever does not persevere and carry his own cross cannot be my disciple. For which of you intending to build a tower does not first sit down and calculate the cost to see whether he has sufficient means to finish it? Otherwise, when he has laid the foundation and is unable to complete the building, all who see it will begin to mock and jeer at him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king going out to engage in conflict with another king will not first sit down and consider and take counsel whether he is able with 10,000 men to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if he cannot do so, when the other king is still a great way off, he sends an envoy and asks the terms of peace. So then any of you who does not forsake all that he has cannot be my disciple. Folks, these are not commands of Jesus. This is not the way God wants it. Jesus is saying, if you're going to be my disciple, this is what it's going to come to. It's what it came to for Jesus. It's what it came to for Paul. It's what it came to for Peter. That's what it came to for Stephen. We'll read about that when we get to the book of Acts. Jesus doesn't want to discourage anybody here, but he often finds himself having to splash some water on our faces sometimes. Sometimes it's the refreshing water of optimism when we have a doom and gloom attitude. So when we have that doom and gloom attitude, Jesus comes along with this splash of water in our face. It reminds us that he's in control. Not a single sparrow falls without the father's consent. Ask and you will receive. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened. God will supply all of your need according to his riches and glory. We need that splash of water in the face because a lot of times we need to have those promises reminded to us. But folks, this here is a splash of water in the face of the prosperity gospel, which was around in Jesus's day. And it's all over the church today in 2017. It's horrible. There are different degrees of it, but it's in just about every church on some level. The most obvious level, that's nothing short of fraud and deception, is when you hear pastors tell you to send them money so God can bless you with a new car or a new house or a new relationship you've been asking for. Just send them the money and God will give you what you want. Others are not quite so obvious. They teach that God knows what you need, so you just sit down and decide what you need, write it down, pray to God about it, tell God about it, and it'll just pop up out of thin air somewhere. If you're in need, it's just a matter of faith. Believe in it, it'll pop up like Puff the Magic Dragon. Now, to some extent, that can be true depending upon God's will and if what you're asking for is in keeping with his will. But a lot of times we decide what God's will is without even asking him what his will is, and we just expect him to do for us what we think he ought to do. And folks, that's backwards. Jesus is Lord, not you. But we fall for it. I used to fall for it. Man's wisdom can be very influential in our way of looking at spiritual things if we're not very careful. Sometimes God identifies a need that he wants to fulfill in our lives over the long term that's more important to him than a need we think we need fulfilled right now. And folks, none of us like it when God does it that way, but that's what good parents do. And most children, if they're honest, will tell you they don't like it either when mom or dad at Christmas time or birthday decides to wrap up a present filled with socks or maybe a new pair of pants. Remember when we were kids, we all hated getting stuff like that. There was nothing more irritating than opening up a present that you thought had a Nintendo in it or a Castle Grey Skull, and you open it up and it's a new pair of pants. 
Mom and Dad knew that we needed that pair of pants more than we needed the Castle Grayskull or the Nintendo, but we didn't think so when we opened up that present. Well, folks, we're just like that as adults with our Heavenly Father. God decides we need patient endurance, and we say, Oh, God, come on! If you would just answer all my prayers the way I want you to and when I want you to, I wouldn't need no patient endurance. Josh, don't you talk to me that way, yes, sir. But none of that gets taught in the churches that fill their pews with people wanting to hear the prosperity gospel. Even in churches that openly oppose the prosperity gospel or infected a little bit without even knowing it. We live in a culture of mainstream Christianity today here in the United States that promotes a view of the Christian life as a life that's all about the American dream. Grow up in church, go to college, get a career, get married to someone who also grew up in church went to college, got a career, and then buy a nice house in a nice neighborhood, have 2.5 children, raise them up in church, send them off to college, get them a career, get them a spouse, so they'll get married, they'll buy a house, they'll have 2.5 children, and on and on it goes. And if you deviate from that pattern, even by a little bit, then it's presumed that there's something wrong with your Christianity which is the height of absurdity, folks. The American dream is a beautiful dream. Don't misunderstand me. I want that. I think everybody wants that to some degree. But not at the expense of whatever God wants. That's what he's saying here. And I'm sorry, God is not sitting up in heaven with the American dream packages waiting to be handed out to everybody who drives up to heaven's drive through window. Just go to church, say the right prayers, read the right Bible verses, be a good little Christian, and God will give you a successful, high-paying, fulfilling job. You'll get married on your own timetable so that you can buy that house and have those kids. And folks, all of our churches seem to be centered around that culture, that atmosphere. But the Bible devotes very little to that. There's a few chapters on parental discipline. Children, obey your parents. Parents, raise your children right. Don't provoke them to wrath, but don't spare the rod either. Teach them right. The Bible teaches that married couples should devote themselves to each other, love each other, put each other first. The men should give themselves over to their wives. The wives should be submissive to their husbands. And all that can be summed up nicely in a neat little package of Bible verses that I could read in less than 30 minutes. What about the rest of the Bible? And folks, I couldn't believe this. I actually heard a couple of pastors in recent months teach sermons on the value of getting married as young as possible, as soon as possible. How it's better on just about every level to marry early, marry young, as soon as possible. Pastors, these were sermons. I heard very little scripture quoted. The only two verses that I heard were the passages where God told Adam and Eve to replenish the land and multiply. And then there was the verse in Psalm or might have been Proverbs that's quoted about loving the wife of your youth. That's it. Nothing was said about waiting upon the Lord. Nothing was said about acknowledging the Lord in all your ways so that he would direct your path and make it straight. Nothing was said about Paul's warning to Christians about the times we're living in, making it more difficult to be married. He wasn't saying that marriage was wrong. He was just saying that if you're single, you have an advantage as a disciple of Christ that married people do not have. Why? Because actively, purposefully, aggressively living the Christian life as a disciple of Jesus isn't easy. It's hard. It's not always fun. 
It's one heck of an adventure. You'll see things that normal people don't see, and you'll experience things that normal people don't experience. You'll have an awareness of realities that most people do not. You'll have a level of discernment that most people do not. But it's not for the weak. It's not for the faint of heart. It's not for people who just want to use God to get their American dream. And there's nothing wrong with the American dream. God may very well bless you with the American dream. He blessed Job with the American dream before and after his trials and tribulations. He blessed Abraham with those things. He blessed Joseph with incredible and unbelievable power, success, notoriety, and wealth. But not until after 13 years of great pain and heartache. And all throughout those 13 years, he saw zero evidence that anything would ever get better. What did Paul say about the Christian life? In 2 Corinthians chapter 6, starting in verse 4, I'm just going to read you what he's telling the Christians in Corinth. He tells them, We commend ourselves in every way as true servants of God through great prosperity. No, that's not what it says. Through great endurance in tribulation and suffering, in hardships and privations, in sore straits and calamities, in beatings, imprisonments, riots, labors, sleepless watching, hunger, by innocence and purity, knowledge and spiritual insight, long-suffering and patience in the Holy Spirit in unfeigned love, by speaking the word of truth in the power of God, with the weapons of righteousness for the right hand to attack and for the left hand to defend, amid honor and dishonor, in defaming and evil report and in praise and good report, We're branded as deceivers, impostors, and yet vindicated as truthful and honest. We are treated as unknown and ignored by the world, and yet we are well known and recognized by God and his people. As dying, and yet here we are alive. As chastened by suffering, and yet not killed. As grieved and mourning, yet we are always rejoicing. As poor ourselves, yet bestowing riches on many as having nothing, and yet, in reality, possessing all things. This is what it means to be a follower of Jesus, folks, because what did Jesus say? If you want to be my follower, pick up your own cross and follow me. Jesus led by example. What was his example? How did the prosperity gospel work out for him? All that he said and did was precisely what God the Father told him to do. And what did he get for it? Beatings, whippings, A wooden cross, some nails, a crown of thorns, and three days in a tomb. Jesus says, you want to be my disciple? Your turn. So here's the big question. Why volunteer to go beyond just getting saved? Why read the Bible? Why take prayer seriously? Why take my relationship with Jesus to the next level, whatever that may be? What are the rewards? What are the costs? Why should I not just be satisfied with being saved? Why should I want more than that? Because, folks, (laughs) it's wonderful. Because God is in control. Not a single sparrow falls to the ground without the Father's consent. If you delight yourself in the Lord, He will give you the desires of your heart. If you acknowledge the Lord in all your ways, He will direct your path and make it straight. You'll find yourself talking to God almost all day and whenever you wake up in the night. You'll have him download things into your mind that he thinks you need to be praying for and you don't even know why you're praying for it. And then the next day you understand why you're praying for it. You will develop the audacity to pray for things and pray for people that you know nobody else is praying for. 
And then God will do you a favor and show you that he answered the prayer in a way that only you see and nobody else does. It'll blow your mind. You'll have the guts and the courage to pray for just about anything and not ever ask yourself, well, now, will God really do that? Jesus concluded this by saying in verse 34, salt is good. It's an excellent thing. And if you'll remember earlier, he said, we're to be salt of the earth. He said it's a good, excellent thing, but if it's lost its strength and has become saltless, how shall its saltness be restored? It's fit neither for the land nor for the manure heap. Men throw it away. He who has ears to hear, let him listen and consider and comprehend by hearing. Folks, that's where we're going to end it. I don't want to end it there. It kind of has a <laughs> doom and gloom feel to it. But the fact is, there's a reason why you're here that goes beyond here. Find out why you're here. There's an adventure waiting for you like nothing you have ever experienced. We'll see you next week, folks. We'll be in Luke chapter 16. Until then, we're out of here. Take care.